computers online. Archiving 44K. T minus 30 seconds. Server connection confirmed. T minus 25 seconds. NSA doesn't want you to hear. Now here is your host, Leno Sanic. Everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, I'll be speaking to Michael Gregory from Sacramento, California. Hello, Michael. Hey, Len. How are you? Very good. Glad you took time to talk to me today. Uh, we had you on before, and we talked about medical news. And I noticed that since you're somewhat in the industry, well, I should just preface that, that you are, but it's always interested me about these things that pop up in the news about Fauci, about COVID, about Pfizer, and just, you know, what they tell us or what they want to block for, you know, 60 years. And then 20 years later, uh, things are coming out and they said, well, you know, you were right about this, but what are you going to do about it now? So, yeah. I, so I, you know, there's a few good people on the internet and I try to have my uh, ear to the ground, like listening for that. But I know you are a little more in tune. So that's why I wanted to have you come on and just give me a, an overview of what we should be looking out for. And, and man, big censorship is trying to rear its head. What are some of the things that are worrying you these days? Well, number one, thank you for having me on. I've been a uh, a big appreciator and consumer of the show for a, a number of years. Uh, you know, first learning of it in the realm of political assassination, which was a great topic of interest to me for many years, and uh, really appreciated the forum that you have provided here for that, and also your open mind regarding COVID and health, that news. As far as there's so much going on, and as you know, I monitor many things daily, but uh, I would say the biggest overarching thing that is a concern to me right now is this international health treaty that the World Health Organization is proposing and uh, member states will be voting on it soon that would basically grant the World Health Organization internationally, globally, the ability to declare a pandemic and uh, basically suspend the individual sovereign constitutions of nation states, you know, for the quote-unquote uh, greater good of the global public health. So now that we've been through the last three years of COVID, you know, the World Health Organization has been a long-established entity. They now have spent the last three years dialing in, you know, their, uh, what did they do in their response that was good to them? 
uh, that was not good to them? What would they like to do more efficiently? And, you know, many, President Biden, Bill Gates, others, Fauci, have also, you know, there's going to be another pandemic. And I think in the long arc of human history, yeah, that may be a safe thing to say, but they present it almost in a kind of knowing way. Like, you know, I, I've never been able to fully get on board with the pandemic side of things, you know, that it was planned, that it's a genocide, and, and, and those uh, views I find are uh, extreme. But I think there was just so much kind of CYA, cover your backside, because the principles involved, you know, stood to uh, really be in a lot of, lot of trouble. But this World Health Organization International Treaty is very concerning because as an American, I am certainly not comfortable with our nation ceding its uh, sovereignty and constitution, even in the event of a pandemic. We didn't do this with COVID 1.0, and things were very clunky at first, but the response arrived at a, uh, you know, they kind of found their sea legs and for better or worse, carried out their plans, you know, and their purported mission, you know, to uh, to stem the tide of, of the virus. Well, when you said, hate to interrupt, but you said their plans, I think this is what happens between normal citizens that are going to take someone's word for it. You think, okay, you are going to create a vaccine or you're going to work on behalf of, of health CDC or Health Canada, Health, you know, America. But we're starting not to trust you. And the further you look into this, this looks awful. And then when you find out that these, um, at least with the booster shots, they were only tried on eight mice. Yeah. You know, most people shake their heads and go, no, that can't be true. And then it's so Orwellian about the lockdown, the mandate. Well, take this shot. You know, of course, it's experimental because, you know, and don't don't dare say anything about ivermectin or anything like that. Right. But the further we look into this, looking back over the last couple of years in Pfizer and especially about, you know, where it came from, you know, that, that it leaked out of a lab, out of some experiment. And you find out all these experiments are doing. It's uh, I, for one, don't just trust them blindly anymore at all if somebody says there's a measles outbreak have a measles shot i you know might have earlier have considered okay well i don't want to get measles but right. now you go is this black rock and vanguard and this is klaus schwab saying and you will take the shot you know right yeah i think it is the convergence of a lot of competing interests that in a situation like COVID, find common ground. You know, the World Economic Forum under Klaus Schwab, they have a certain set of goals and a vision for the world. The World Health Organization does. You know, Bill Gates and his foundations and Gavi, they have a certain set of things. You know, the U.S. National Institutes of Health and the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, even, you know, the American political system, they all have competing interests, but at times they converge, and uh, many of them did converge with COVID. And uh, you bring up a very, very major point of this. 
in their response to COVID, the government health agencies, some of which I just mentioned, NIH, CDC, completely destroyed their their credibility with a large percentage of the populace here in America. And then those people go online and on the, the corporate news outlets and say, well, you know, it's misinformation. They're, you know, they're speaking bad things against us. And we're trying to, to, you know, complete our noble mission to take care of the health of, of this country. And it's like, no, there is no acknowledgement at all that their decisions, their response completely devastated their credibility with a large portion of the populace. And people basically have a filter. They have a nose to smell. You know, you know when you're being lied to. You may get fooled a time or two, but when it's continuous, you begin to smell very, very soon that you're being lied to. You know, you mentioned uh, the origin debate between lab leak and natural spillover. I was convinced from almost the get-go. You know, initially I was like, well, yeah, it could be either. But then as things started to come forward, I almost immediately said this is almost certainly lab leak. And that was three years ago. And the convening three years, more and more and more have come out. In fact, I saw a tweet today from an account. The name is Champagne Joshi, J-O-S-H-I. I don't know who the man is, but it has video of Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. For your listeners who don't know, you know, Fauci was doing the gain-of-function research. And then in 2014, the Obama administration placed a moratorium on it, uh, considering it to be risky and dangerous. And uh, part of that research was being done in Wuhan. Some of it was being done here in the U.S., and it was mainly being done through Ralph Barrick at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Then Fauci found a sneaky workaround, the moratorium, and it's okay, we're not going to directly fund the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We're going to fund EcoHealth Alliance, which is run by a man named Peter Daszak, who's very, very uh, prominent player in the cover-up of the virus, where it came from. And when they sent a uh, delegation over to China a couple years ago, yeah, we're going to go look into it. Number one, the Chinese had plenty of time to hide anything incriminating. And who did they put on that team? They put Peter Daszak. Huge conflict of interest. His group was Fauci's funnel. Say, okay, we can't fund Wuhan Institute of Virology directly. We'll give the money to Peter Daszak. Then he says, okay, I'm going to give it to these various people. And it masked, you know, Fauci's continued involvement in that research. So long story short, that's the background on Ralph Barrick at, at Chapel Hill. Well, this guy's tweet shows a video of from 2007 of Ralph Barrick giving a lecture at the university and says the year is 2007 and Ralph Barrick of UNC Chapel Hill is giving a presentation on the new and exciting science behind synthetically creating the SARS virus and making it more pathogenic. 
However, you're supposed to believe that a bat screwed a pangolin that ended up at a wet market, so you should probably completely dismiss this detailed presentation by the world's most cited coronavirus researcher. <laughs> yeah, and when I listened to Robert Kennedy Jr. and other research against Pfizer and Vioxx and some of the other things that they've had, you know, oh, you've killed 50 to 60,000 people, we're going to give you a fine of $5 billion dollars. But they made $12 billion on the product, which they, exactly. uh, you know, it's um, so depressing to think that people do that. They just, you know, for the money, just put it out, put it out, right? It is, yeah, it is just a uh, for show. They have plenty of money to absorb a fine like that. And there's nothing penalizing about it. And it's not, not effective. So, yeah, there's so many points like this you know that are coming out now more and more and more there's a gentleman in ireland named iver i-v-o-r cummings c-u-m-m-i-n-g-s iver cummings and he has things on he might have been kicked off youtube i don't know he's he has stuff still on that i see on facebook every now and again and his account name is fat emperor but he is a scientist, and he's interviewed other scientists. He is always presenting data, and if something is his opinion, he will say so. And he just had something today that I had posted. It looks like, okay, it did come from YouTube, uh, of him interviewing another scientist back in 2021, where they basically showed step-by-step. Step, they broke down you know, the very technical, scientific jargon to a layman's understanding to show you that a furin cleavage site was added to the original SARS virus. Not only that, but then what happens after you do that, how the virus reacts, that they said the odds of this happening in nature are infinitesimally almost zero. That this is the course that nature would take, that it would know to put this furin cleavage site right at this spot in the receptor binding domain and have it attack the ACE2 receptor in human lung tissue because they were using what they call humanized mice. You may have seen that term. They basically add that human ACE2 receptor to the lungs of mice so that they will respond to the pathogen like a human lung would. And uh, just amazing. But no, it's, you know, in the first SARS, SARS-1, they found the spillover source in weeks, I think, three weeks, with MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. They found the natural spillover source in a similarly small amount of time. We're over three years with COVID. Nothing has been found in the, you know, in the way that they found the other two so quickly. Nothing but yet more and more evidence piles up pointing to lab leak. There's, of course, no smoking gun. It's been too long, and these people are too smart to allow that. But well, it should be the other way around. It should be that, what do you mean you had a lab there? Show us your documents. Prove that you didn't cause this. Because if right. you did, we want to shut it down. And yeah. 
even with the um, the viral technology, Pfizer didn't want to release their their research for 65 years or something. I mean, it's just you just wouldn't believe it or you wouldn't take it. It reminds me of Woody Harrelson. Remember when he went on Saturday Night Live to say, yeah. I just got a script. They said this cartel was going to keep everybody in home and make them buy their drugs or they couldn't come out. That and, was uh, but who? Funny. That was utterly brilliant, the way he presented that, so he could get away with actually saying it on the air. And Jon Stewart, a uh, liberal TV talk show host, former talk show host here, went on the talk show of a guy who was a big, big, just toe-the-line, toe-the-pharma-line, toe-the-CDC-line on his show, and told the truth. And he said, you know, what are the odds, you know? A Wuhan virus breaks out in Wuhan, less than a mile from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they work on dangerous viruses. <laughs> you know, I haven't watched him since then. And it's kind of funny that you didn't mention his name, because I'm sure you know who it is, and I know who it is. And I, since that day, I haven't watched him. So I stopped watching him yeah. when they had a full Broadway Oh, yeah. People dressed up as needles and all that. Yeah. Let's not even get into that. Um, who I do listen to is Jimmy Dore and, yes. and the Jimmy Dore show. They have so many good doctors on. And you know these people are getting bounced off of demonetized and kick off of YouTube and other places, right? Thank God for, I'm amazed they don't like him, but Elon Musk spent $40 billion, billion of his own dollars to buy Twitter and release the documents and say to some reporters, listen, go through this. I think there's something really dark here. I want you to go through it and you present it to the public. It doesn't have to be my opinion. And of course they have. And, uh, you know, it's nicknamed the Twitter files. Yeah. But it's it's just astounding that the FBI had offices set up in there and, and they just did anything to... Uh, to ban people or shadow ban them, you think you're posting something, and then you, you find out that no, nobody can see it. That's yeah. why you know. You know, when the Twitter files first happened, I I signed up for Matt Taibbi's Substack because he was one of the two or three main guys that Musk was allowing to see this and feed it to him. And I was reading the, those Substacks every day because he was just pouring over them. And a lot of great information came out of that. And I need to say, too, my disclaimer for your uh, listeners, because I know you have listeners all over the world. Uh, I'm an American. I am not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I am not registered with any political party. Uh, have a very low view, cynical view of the American political system. And kind of keep you know, myself at arm's length from it, and would like to think that, based on my view, that I have a certain level of objectivity. You know, no one has a hundred percent objectivity, but I am not a uh, Republican or right wing ideologue. I'm not a left wing or Democrat ideologue. Um, you know, there's no even the independents. There's no one political party that completely uh, mirrors the contour of my views. So that's where none of this is coming from. We do have to speak of politics to a certain degree because the issue has been so politicized and it has been uh, brought forth and executed 
via government. And so we do have to talk about the political aspect of it, but mostly what I have you know, approached it from has been the scientific view. You know, I do work in the healthcare industry. I'm not a doctor, but the degree that I earned had all the pre-med courses that a doctor or a nurse would take before going into their clinical practicum and residency. So my baseline understanding of medical issues, medical terminology, a basic science is, I would say, better than the average bear. And it's only grown in the last three years because the COVID propaganda just forced me to, much to my wife's dismay, <laughs> to spend hours and hours and hours reading, researching. It, it really opened my lens up a lot wider, a lot deeper. Yeah, it's depressing isn't even the right word for me, but I just, you go, how bad can this be? And I know when Joe Rogan had RFK Jr. on, he said when he was reading his book, The Real Anthony Fauci, he said, I can't believe you're saying all this because I had to put the book down. And now I thought, if it wasn't true, they would be suing him. And they're just yeah. being quiet about it. Right. You know, another, um, while we're mentioning uh, resources that we value, and I, I value Jimmy Dore for his stance. Uh, I love that he politically lambastes the left and the right equally and uh, has done a lot of truth-telling with COVID. Brett Weinstein. Brett Weinstein, right. I was going to say Russell Brand even. Russell Brand has done a lot of truth-telling lately. You know, I never really uh, was a, a fan. I love stand-up comedy, but his, his comedy didn't hit me, and I'm, you know, a bit old to be a fan of his movies and be the proper audience for that. So uh, he wasn't really wasn't on my radar, but when he started on his YouTube channel and started talking truth about COVID, I went, wow. Uh, this is very articulate and well-researched. Well Another one from the UK is Dr. John Campbell, and I repost a lot of his things. Yeah, he's he, almost like the godfather. He really is. He's a doctor. He was in the National Health in England, in the UK. Uh, he was a nurse trainer for 40 years and is fully a doctor, always full of data, he never does a video of just his opinion. He's always giving you numbers, always giving you graphs, always giving you... But reading what the layman might not understand. So when he goes through some of the documents, then he says, I'll tell you what this means. Yes. Oh, my God. There was one where he didn't want to get you know kicked off of YouTube. <laughs> and if you, you're already laughing, you know what I'm talking about, probably. But he said, yeah. all this data, you know what that means? And he goes, oh, and by the way, I've just been taking up basketball lately, and I've just, <laughs> I've done a slam dunk. Yeah. And I <laughs> laughed and laughed because we knew what he was just referring to that, that, that these documents just prove they were lying. Yeah, just like Jimmy Dore. They'll do something on a segment on the vaccine and they go, and, you know, we have to tell you folks, you know, that the vaccine is great. It's safe and effective and it will keep you uh, from hospitalization and death anyway. <laughs> and he'll just go on. And, but the but, poverty of that, I mean, you know, absolutely. we were just talking about gravity or is it particles, is it waves or whatever people would say, here's the pro and con of my until until. 
you know, enough people discuss it and it's knowledge gained. And here they can't even agree where it came from. And then, you know, it really did upset, upset me, but I was, I was, um, I started to really distrust Fauci when I heard him being grilled by Rand Paul. And he says, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm starting to think, no, I think he does, you know, and it's getting darker, all the cover-ups you're doing. Right. Yeah. He's, he's a doctor, you know, he's not, not a virologist, but the thing with Fauci, Fauci has been a bureaucrat for the majority of his career. He got right out of college and almost directly into government. So, you know, he was never a guy in the trenches. He knows he knows the lingo. He knows the basics of all of of all of that of virology and immunology. But his main thing, he's been a power broker. He was the one who had the purse strings. And if you wanted funding for your lab, your research, your program, uh, you know, your chance to get a Nobel, then you're going to go and kiss his ring. He was that guy. He was the godfather. And twice, blatantly, if you know the truth, before Congress with Rand Paul, he perjured himself. But because of who he is and who he's protected by, he will never face prosecution. He probably won't ever even face a fine. And in government, he was the highest paid federal employee in the United States. He made more than the president. He made close to half a million dollars a year. Then when Rand Paul asked him, do you have any conflict of interest? Do you benefit financially from any of this? He would not answer the question. His name is on several patents related to this that are uh, earning him a huge payday. But yet he will not. You want to say anything about it? Um, I just had friends on both ends of the political spectrum today on my Facebook arguing back and forth because I posted a thing about how Fauci is having, although he's out of his public service job, he's retired, but the U.S., us, the taxpayers, are footing the bill for his private security detail and driver everywhere he goes because he says he's, quote, you know, under threat of right-wing extremists. So the, yeah, well, yeah. wait a minute. Don't gloss over the cost. How much are they paying? One million a month. One million a month security yeah. for him. Right, yeah. So it's, forget his $500,000 a year, uh, you yeah. know, making more than the president. I think the president made four hundred, right? But yeah. $12 million a year for security for him. This is ridiculous, number one. If you are under credible threats, since this is paid for by the public, the public should have access to that information. You know, we we know we don't, we shouldn't get all of it, but where are the credible threats? And then number two, because you are a very wealthy man, you can afford your own personal security. He's worth millions and millions because of these patents that he's named on. You know, because I know you and I are both have been in the music business in our lives. You know, it's like when a producer gives himself extra little titles and things so he can get more points on the record. And I was a producer and I was the executive producer. Well, you did the same job. Yeah, but I get another point for being executive producer. You know, so Fauci just wrote himself into into the money. And that money... Pharma, huge millions of dollars. Have you ever seen 
that video compilation that just has little two-second clips strung end-to-end of all these news shows, TV shows. CNN This Week, brought to you by Pfizer. NBC News, brought to you by Pfizer. Uh, Washington This Week with George Stephanopoulos, brought to you by Pfizer. It goes on for three minutes, and they're only like two to five seconds apiece. So these, these stations, these media outlets, are not going to print anything that goes against the people that are paying their bills, that are paying their salaries. They're not going to do it. They're bought and paid for. We have a bought and paid for lapdog media when it co- in this country when it comes to Pfizer and Pharma and uh, probably in a lot of other countries, probably in yours as well. I know, uh, you know, Mr. Trudeau seems to uh, toe that line and he's one of uh, Klaus Schwab's promising young leaders or whatever the term was that he... Henchman. Henchman, I think is what his title is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> but you know... Uh, talking about the news and, and legacy media, that now people like Jimmy Dore and Russell Brand and John Campbell, they're really trying to clamp down. And that's happened in Canada where they're trying to, you know, in England, especially I think at the end of the month here in October, they're really trying to clamp down and call anything disinformation that is not state-sponsored. So it's bad yeah. enough that so many people have stopped watching Look at the popularity of since he quit NBC, right? Tucker Carlson, he does yeah. his own little show, and he's getting millions and millions of views on that. When I think that the NBC at large was getting two point five million a night, maybe CNN was getting four hundred thousand. I mean, you he was yeah he was just leaving them in the dust as far as numbers, and you know I never watched him before because. You know, I never watched Fox. I was like, I don't watch MSNBC. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch any of those corporate outlets. So I knew who he was, but I literally had never watched a minute of one of his shows. But then when he started doing the YouTube thing, I thought, okay, I got to give the guy a listen. And yeah, or even the, tw- the Twitter. I think it was on Twitter. Yeah, boy. But he's, where he's, he's now. But, selling you know, a lot of truth. Yeah, you know, surprisingly, I've changed my mind on several things, and I... No, when he was on, John Stewart tacked him on Crossfire and he used to wear that little bow tie. Yeah. I did have a real animosity that might have lasted 10 years. But then when I did hear him speak, you know, I slowly, you know, I don't know if begrudgingly he was, but I went, well, wait a minute. how I didn't like this guy and I'm starting to agree with him. And, you yeah. know, I'm, it's more and more until the fact that, yeah, it's I was even like that in the early days of Jimmy Dore that – he was attacking Democrats where I thought, well, Republicans are the problem. But our side is the Democrats quit going against them. And then more and more I go, gee, they're they're equally as bad. You, you know, begrudgingly pointed that out that, you know, what's that old saying? Left wing and right wing part of the same bird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like yeah, trying to trying to recall and paraphrase the Jimmy Dore quote because he, you know, is hard. I mean, he was a liberal. He said, I was a hardcore liberal. You know, I'm a, I'm a comic. I mean, I'm a stand-up comedian. You know, there's not a lot of Republican stand-up comedians or people in the music business for that matter. Um, and people were getting after him saying, well, why are you attacking the Democrats? The Republicans are the problem. And he said, I'm not attacking Democrats 
because I agree with the Republicans. I'm attacking Democrats because they agree with Republicans. <laughs> you know, they're 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 pro-war. Uh, you, you would know, never think so until you see the, the the handing money off to Ukraine just like they can't so, print it yeah. fast enough. And yeah. that was a that was a real shock to me. How uh, I think the only people that are starting to question it are Republicans now saying. Where's all this money going where it should be going to Palestine, East Palestine, and yeah. Maui, and other problems, right? Where Jimmy will often say that there's like, you know, people living under every bridge in America. And yeah. you've got money to keep building weapons of war and supply it to someone who will fight? My city here, Sacramento, California, is the capital of the state. Because of my music career, I lived in Nashville, Tennessee for 20 years. And I returned here and was aghast when I came five years ago at how bad the, the homeless problem had got here. And it's even gotten worse in the five years since I've been back. It's really, really bad. You know, there, yeah, there are people everywhere on, you know, living in tents on sidewalks and things. It's, it's really amazing and politicians on both sides get richer and you know i had yeah like you i i had people to me why don't you say anything bad about the republicans with all this covid stuff i said i have i said trump really botched it at first and number one he didn't know what he was doing number two he totally trusted that you know fauci was uh, on the level and he was getting information from him and now, ever since the Biden administration, you know, the way this has been politicized, they interviewed Kamala Harris, our vice president, during the campaign when she and Joe Biden were still running against Trump. You're going to get the vaccine? I wouldn't take a Trump vaccine. And then as soon as Biden's in office, they're even more hardcore than Trump was. Get the vaccine. Get the vaccine. You must take the vaccine. Hey, wait a minute. The formulation of the vaccine didn't change. All that changed was the party in power. Yeah, well, another turning point for me was the Joe Rogan CNN thing, where they really yeah. colorized him. They went hardcore on horse paste. Yeah. And then they said that there was a knifing and shooting victims standing in line that they couldn't get in in, in somewhere in the Midwest yeah. because of so many COVID patients. And then the fraud that that was. Yeah, the, the um, picture where they showed supposedly the patient standing in line yeah. was from another time and yeah. another location. And uh, I really appreciated you know, Joe Rogan when he had Sanjay Gupta on, the medical chief medical correspondent from CNN. And he grilled him over the ivermectin thing, the horse paste thing. He goes, you guys lied. Why did you do that? Well, I don't know. No, you lied. Well, I'm... Yeah, I don't know why they did that. <laughs> Just pinned up. What's the other uh, monoclonal? What is that other? Oh, monoclonal antibodies. Right. That was something that had promise along with ivermectin and a couple Early of things. Early treatment was completely scotched. It was vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. And, you know, I was very much in danger of losing my job in healthcare because uh, I refused the vaccine. And... And social media just got lambasted as an anti-vaxxer. And I said, look, I have three children. When they were coming up, 
their ch my children got every single vaccination injection that their pediatrician recommended. There's a schedule for vaccinations all through their growth at different years of age. I said, I never refused a single one. I said, I work in healthcare. I have to get a flu shot every year. I've never refused to get it. I worked in a prison. I worked in Folsom Prison teaching music for the state for a number of years. And I had to have TB shots and varicella titer. And, you know, all, man, you got, you got jabbed for that job. I said, but this one, I'm not anti-vax, but I am very wary slash skeptical of this one because it is untested. It is so new. And this is just a huge experiment on humanity. You know, I posted a thing today on Facebook where this guy supposedly has the receipts that, you read it here, we can't locate a signed agreement with Pfizer, said Israel's Ministry of Health. Did the Netanyahu government and the Israel Israeli Minister of Health mislead the public and the world? New documents reveal the deal between Israel and Pfizer was signed even before their vaccine received emergency use authorization. The new document in the Ministry of Health's response contained dramatic information that is contrary to what was indicated by the unsigned copy. It appears that the deal with Pfizer was signed before the vaccine even received emergency use authorization. However, the Ministry of Health in Israel actively attempted to conceal this information and even created a false representation that the agreement was signed at a later date. And he shows, he's got a link and then shows a uh, screenshot of a document, which of course is written all in Hebrew. So, <laughs> but uh, hopefully there's an English translation of it there. So. You know, they're saying that they, if you talk about an experiment of humanity, right, you know, because they said the uh, supposedly the vaccination rate in Israel was the highest, the quickest of any nation on earth. They were just like, yep, come on in, absolute green light, jab everybody. But apparently that was even signed before the emergency youth authorization was approved. If that's true, wow. Well, it. You, you wonder that the fix is in just to start this mandate. Track everybody. Don't let them fly. Don't let them travel. And yeah. th this is how we'll implement that. And this speaks again to that convergence of interests that I talk about. You know, that, you know, like John Judge used to say, I don't think there's, you know, seven guys sitting around a table in a dark conference room smoking cigars and plotting the, the course of the world. You know, that's the Hollywood version of it. But there are powerful interests whose plans and interests sometimes converge. Governments want to be able to control their population, right? And so the pharma companies want to be able to sell their products. And entertainment, media, right? They're getting all their money from pharma, so they're going to dance to that tune. And... Now we've got cybersecurity, we've got AI, you know, digital IDs. And for me, the big thing when it all will change irrevocably is if central bank digital currencies are adopted. If they can shut off your money with a mouse click, they've got you. That's your money. And you can't keep any paper money in your pocket 
you know, do what you want to do with it anymore because if it's digital, then that's absolute control when you have the spigot to people's money. You know, it's game over. Yeah, and the guys like Bill Gates, psychopath, and still the client list of Epstein Island, nobody's saying a word, you know, but... uh... Yeah, the elites and the very powerful, you know, what George Carlin in his brilliant standard routine called the real power. He said, I'm not talking about, you know, the government agencies and the president and their hood ornaments. I'm about the real power, the people, the owners of this country in the corporate and moneyed interest. That's where you get into the Black Rock and Vanguard, these uh, entities that are holding, you know, billions, trillions in assets for other companies. I mean, they're just behemoths. And who can who can prevail against them? You know, I don't know if you've ever read Chris Hedges much. Oh, I listened to Chris, you know, on his show. Yeah. And uh, it just... My quote from him is he said, you know, every election cycle comes around, people think they're going to vote and make a change. And he said, in this day and age, it is impossible to vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs because they've bought people on both sides, no matter who gets in. They win. You know, my worn out phrase I use all the time, it's a casino. The house never loses. Well, funding the Ukraine war has never been more obvious. It's a slap in the face that they just, they go and buy shares in Lockheed and whatever, and then they vote for the money to be sent, and they build the weapons, and they go there, and they, <laughs> they're they on the black market. They're showing up, they're sold, there's kickbacks. And of course, yeah. Ukraine was known as the most corrupt country in Europe before that. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, we'll get down that rabbit hole. So I want to stick to just the medical stuff that that catches your attention. And uh, the people that may be listening, you know, if Michael is paying attention to it, we should be. And I think that um, the way governments now are getting into the broadcasting, where they want to limit shows and have people who can come on, that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on my horizon that, uh, well, would I, will I be next? Yeah. Luckily, that smear campaign against Russell Brand didn't really pan out. But they did yeah. try to shut Tate down, right? Um, Tristan and Andrew Tate. Yeah, right? I know. Uh, uh, locked them up on just a phony charge or, or, or something, you know. And the fact that um, Julian Assange is still in prison, you know. Yeah. And nobody says anything, and I can't do anything about it, but you would think Australia or England, but it could be the draconian laws of England are even tougher, and they're just like saying to their citizens, what are you going to do about it? Right. Well, you and I know from our you know, political assassination research and with the intelligence community, the five eyes, they're all, you know, they're all in one basket together. For the most part, they have you know their own individual interests that are sometimes at cross purposes, but for the most part, globally, they're they're on the same page. And so yeah, him and Snowden, you know, people that really you know, uh, Benny, the NSA guy that they man they stripped him. He wrote a lot of that software. Is it something Wind? I can't remember the software that. Uh, oh yeah, there's so many of them. Oh, and God, they, I made a video where it's like... Rested him in his underwear in the middle of the night. They bled him dry, made him spend his life savings to defend himself legally, and now he works at an Apple store in a mall, you know. Well, it's, at least he's not Michael Hastings. Right. 
So, exactly. um, so what are a couple of the things that you said cryptocurrency, you're on the lookout to, to stay away from governments running that, eh? I see stories weekly, you know, of government making proposals and, you know, starting to draft legislation and things. So it's coming. The groundwork is being laid. They're planting the seeds. But, you know, when that harvest is reaped, like I said, that is the end of the free life as we know it, because they have got us under their thumb to a certain degree. We have to obey laws. We have to uh, speak within a certain lane on social media, you know, or you get defunded or deplatformed. And so they do have certain controls in place, but you're able to, you know, speak and go to Rumble and other places. But when they can shut off your money with a mouse click, what recourse do you have? That is absolute control. That is airtight, watertight. If they can shut off your money with a mouse click, some guy sitting at a workstation in D.C. Okay, this guy violated the thing. His social credit score is... uh, He's troublemaker. Click. No money. And that, you know, again, to quote John Judge, you know, he said, uh, you know, what was his name? Goebbels. So Goebbels would have given his saluting arm to have, you know, a tenth of this kind of control and influence. I'm really pissed off at YouTube now, and I'm going to try to put more things up at Rumble. Just the way they, uh, they dropped... Russell Brand, they demonetized him, and yeah. they also took a guy right off the air, uh, Jackson Hinkle. Yes. Right Another, now, he was in the Russia sure giving why. reports of, you know, contrary to everything you hear in the news, he's in the subways, he's in the art galleries, he's out for dinner or something, and he's saying, this is what Moscow looks like right now. You know, I don't know what you've heard, right, but here's what's going on, and they just don't want that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... I think another one... Well, I listened to Douglas McGregor and Scott Ritter, even Judge Napolitano, right? So yeah. there's there's quite a few good information uh, places where you agree with them or not completely all the time. Right. That's the thing. Uh, it's Max Blumenthal at the Gray Zone. Right, yeah. He's another one who Jimmy Dore has features uh, widely. And, yeah, it's if you go against the prevailing narrative then like with Russell Brand it was only an accusation and in America the legal standard of justice is innocent until proven guilty and just on a accusation you know I don't know he was he was very successful and rich young and you know uh very right, but as you mentioned, he wasn't even charged. There was no right. charges pending. That's the thing, yeah, exactly. it was kind of like. And if you know his background, I think he had a bout with drugs, you know, an addiction and whatever. He, that, so he, you know, he, he he was out there, you know, living yeah. it up. I, I I was in entertainment. I played for famous people. I saw them take full advantage of their uh, position and their success. And I'm sure he was no different. But at the mere accusation. To shut off his monetization, that is purely politically and ideologically driven. There is no, and they just use the vague, you violated our community standards. Well, what standards did I violate? Everybody that I've read that have received that message, they write to them and they don't get an explanation. They say, no, you broke the rule. 
we're not going to tell you what the rule is. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to tell you. So that's why people should go to Rumble more often than YouTube, for one thing. Yeah, like the I mean, smart ones like... Um, well, that letter came out uh, in uh, someone from English, in England, uh, Parliament, uh, wrote a letter to Rumble and uh, saying you should fall in line with everybody else. We're going to be, you know, getting rid of this guy like they tried to do to Alex Jones. And right. he published a letter and he said, no, Rumble stands for uh, free speech. I was so glad to see that. Um, another one is Kim Iverson. I don't know if you're familiar with yes. her. And There's it, only so many hours in the day, though. I can't watch right. everybody. No, because I, uh, you know, I was aware of her because she started out in radio. She was here in Sacramento. She was a student at UC Davis, and uh, um, then she went uh, directly, I think, out of college into the local radio and TV market. You know, like doing news, traffic, weather, that kind of thing. So I remember her name being around. And then she started doing uh, political material. Then she went on The Rising on the Hill. And then, like, she was one, like, really the only one that wasn't a shill on either side. And when they were interviewing, I forget who it was, maybe it was a presidential candidate or somebody. And they were going to let, you know, the left person on there and the right person on there interview this person. But they told Kim, you can't interview him. And she said, I'm out. You know, if if I thought we were no holds barred journalism, I thought we were, you know, ask any question, get the truth. And so, uh, you know, my respect for her. Uh, increased at that because that was you know a higher level of exposure for her and uh, a greater audience and she said nope not going to do it I have integrity so I really appreciate her okay well so you mentioned a few of the people that you look up to and follow for uh, keeping abreast of of news um, in, in the case of medical malfeasance it's just uh, it's so important yeah. because these companies seem to be behind something even darker and you go let's get this under control and then you know we'll find out what they've already been working on for 10 years that we're just coming to but yeah the, these mandates and you know people nodding you know saying i'm not sick okay i'll, I'll take a test okay i don't have covid you know fine let me in but no you know, I would also on that note point your readers who aren't aware of him to the late Dr. Carrie Mullis, K-A-R-Y-M-U-L-L-I-S. We saw so much about PCR testing. Get a PCR test for COVID. Carrie Mullis won the Nobel Prize for creating, basically developing the PCR. He said it's not a test, it's a technique. It can't tell you if you're sick, but that's what they're using it for. And he died like six months before COVID started. So ironic because he, uh, there's videos of him. He could not stand Fauci. He said he doesn't know what he's doing. He's a bureaucrat. He's not a scientist. And he said, I'll tell him to his face. He has no idea what the hell he's talking about. And there's videos of him 
at least six months ago, they were still on YouTube of him speaking. And he's saying all the PCR technique does, it allows you to amplify something. You have this little microscopic speck. Well, you can put in the PCR and you go each cycle, it doubles the size of it. And so you can blow it up big enough to look at. And he said, it can't tell you that you're sick because it looks at everything. And so if you had COVID six months ago, there are still dead nucleotides that were active when you had an active infection. The infection passed, your body fought it and won. And those dead nucleotides are still there. And they're very small, microscopic, and you blow it up. A dead nucleotide will throw a positive PCR result. And so you blow anything up big enough, you can find anything in anybody. That's an exact quote from him. So, you know, he says it's like the Buddhist notion of, you know, make me one with everything. He said, you'll find anything in anybody if you blow it up enough. And so, uh, you know, he said, no more than, I forget, it was like 28 cycles or somewhere around there, I said, don't go any higher than that, because it's like when you blow up a photograph, then things start getting grainy, and you see blobs, and it's like the Badge Man photograph from the Grassy Knoll when they blew that up, right? And you're like, is that a cop? Is that a blob? Is that a tree? Is that a shadow? And this is what happens with the PCR in principle. And so... Um, in the U.S., and I know definitely in the U.K., their, their official advice, I have the documents, run it at 45 cycles. Well, you're blowing it up so large, you're almost guaranteed a positive. And so, um, you know, the, the whole PCR thing was just a sham, an absolute sham, because it was completely unreliable. You get up to 45 cycles, and I read two different scientists that said your false positive rate is going to be up in the 90 percentile. And that's what they were using for their official numbers. If you had a positive test, oh, you're COVID, and you know that number is getting added to the public tally. And so the number, those millions and millions of cases were grossly overinflated. So if you can, go to YouTube or Google and look up Dr. Carrie Mullis, K-A-R-Y-M-U-L-L-I-S. I hope the YouTube videos are still up because he just, in once, like I said, he tells you what PCR is, what it isn't, what it can and cannot do. And he specifically says it cannot tell you that you're sick. And then he also just uh, lays into Fauci. And he's someone, you know, this guy's a Nobel Prize winner. He was really something. And so uh, you can learn a lot just from reading about him and watching those videos. Okay, very good. Well, I guess before we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to appoint people to look at any websites or even your own or just, you know, wrap up about what's on your horizon? Sometimes I, when I talk to Dave Ratcliffe, it's like that. You know, the things you're looking at, only six months from now do I come up. So Right. Yeah, so, he's, he's a brilliant guy for yeah. sure. So go ahead. 
Well, again, we, we mentioned so many resources between the two of us that give uh, your listeners places to go. And again, as Len said, you know, we don't endorse every word out of their mouth. We don't just blanket agree with everything they're saying. But for the most part, we're finding that what they say resonates. They have data, they have documents, they have receipts. And even when it's just a theory or it could be, nine out of ten times it turns out they're right. And so I pool all of these resources every week. You know, I'm working doing my healthcare job and I'm working at home and I put on YouTube and Rumble and I, I just listen to things and soak that while I'm working. And I go online, I go Google News, some other, you know, news aggregating sites and I look at okay, what are the what are the right leaning media organizations saying about the stories of the day? What are the left leaning ones saying? What are the libertarians saying? Um, and somewhere in there, you aggregate all that together and strain it, and there's a little bit of the truth in there. But you have to do a lot of uh, you know, a lot of surveying, a lot of active listening and reading. If you're the type of person that comes home and I'm just going to switch on, uh, you know, my cable or corporate news du jour for a half hour, you're not getting informed. You're, uh, you know, getting baby fed a bottle. That's no reflection on you. That's what we were raised to do and to trust. And they're not informing you. One, yeah, little anecdote is in in Vancouver, in Canada, we have Global TV and um, CTV and the CBC. And many times when they take their news item and they put it on YouTube, the comments are turned off. People were so, you know, you're lying. This is not true. You know, tell the other side of the story. And now so many times I just laugh. If I, if I see the comments are turned off, I don't even watch it. You know, yeah. I know they turned it off because they can't take the heat. Right. Yeah, they can't. They can't stand behind the story. And, yeah, we don't have reporters anymore. We have repeaters. Yeah, I've seen some of those little videos where they have the same story in word for word. The picture that, goes in. Yeah. So striking, so striking, where they're just a reel of three-second clips of the good-looking guy and gal morning news team or the uh, dinner evening news team. And, they're, yeah, they're saying the exact same thing, and it's just Project Mockingbird. Or on YouTube, they'll have context. Missing context, right? Yeah. I get that one from Facebook's. They say independent fact checkers. And when it's been proven, I forget who had the story. I posted it a while back that they traced the money. Facebook was funding the so-called independent fact checkers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my God. So keep, I just say to all your listeners, if you're listening to Black Ops Radio, you're obviously not the standard, you know, Joe Sixpack that comes home and watches a half hour of news, you have a deeper interest, you're a more thoughtful person, your your level of interest is deeper than the average bear. And so Yeah, uh, and, and trying to hear both sides of it. You know, sometimes yeah. my mind is made up and like I said earlier, sometimes I change my mind. I changed my mind, you know? Had my mind changed on several things in the last three and a half years. Absolutely. So stand corrected, I'll admit. When I'm wrong, and I will post it, I'll post a retraction. 
hey, I just want the truth. I'm not an R. I'm not a D. I'm not an I. I'm just a guy who wants the truth. I think that's what we all want. And I appreciate uh, you and your listeners who are similarly in that pursuit. Okay, Mr. Gregory, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for taking time to talk to me today, and we'll talk in the near future. And I follow you on your Facebook page, which has a lot of always good articles pop up that somehow I didn't you know, notice. Like I say, I listen to uh, Russell Brand or, or Jimmy Dore, a few people that, that bring up stuff that we're probably most interested in. But Yeah, and get shadowed. And so, yeah, it's good for all of us to post those things because they'll be like, wow, I didn't know that. You know, the same thing happens to me. People post things and I'm a news hound just combing through it every day and nobody can catch it all. So I, I appreciate that. All right, then. Thank you very much. And I'll talk to you again in the near future. Thanks, Lynn. Appreciate it. You're welcome. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we're speaking to author Jeffrey Meek. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Len. How are you, sir? Very good to be speaking to you again. Uh, you have a new book, The JFK Files, Pieces of the Assassination Puzzle, and I want to talk about that today. You have been on the show before talking about some of your articles. I think one was at uh, Kennedy's and King. But in the meantime, why don't you give us just a brief background of your interest in the assassination and i know you've been uh, well go ahead we'll just take it from there you know what caught your interest in the assassination uh march 6 1975 geraldo rivera's good night america program was on and uh, i had no idea the assassination was going to be part of that program i stayed up uh, late that night because um raquel welsh was going to be on she had just won a golden globe award and uh chance to see her and, and listen to um, her, you know, her talk about her award. And then uh, Dick Gregory and Robert Roden came on and started talking about the assassination and showed the Zapruder film. And I was like, what? What? And uh, Rivera said, you know, their next program in three weeks is going to devote the whole time to the assassination. So I borrowed my mother's little tape recorder and sat in front of the TV and taped it and was still skeptical. And so I... Um, checked out of the library some of the books they were talking about and uh, still wasn't convinced. So I wrote to Washington for the documents that were mentioned in the books. And by golly, what they were saying was the real deal. And uh, nine months later, I was in Dallas uh, spending time at Mary Farrell's house, Uh, you know, probably the world's most knowledgeable researcher at the time, and uh, spent a week with her in December of the 75 and again in 76 and uh, it just kind of snowballed from there um interviewed some Dell's police officers and and uh, started buying uh, more and more books about it and just it just i it just snowballed Lynn. i couldn't believe how much i didn't know and uh my re- i was pretty heavy into it until about the mid 90s and then life got in the way and, uh, you know, kids and job, and um, I had taken on an athletic director position besides my teaching duties and coaching duties, and so I got really busy, and, you know, I would still buy books and record programs and, and so on, but I wasn't, but I wasn't ac- actively researching again until 2017. What do you think was interest that you got, you bought so many books or did interviews? Was there something that, that caught you about it that you thought uh, something was rotten in Denmark? 
well, you know, things just didn't add up, and I just explored whatever opportunities I had to to try to learn more. And um, you know, being down, uh, spending a week with Mary Farrell and and reading the documentations uh, and documents that she had was getting from Paul Hoke, and uh, you know, it just I just I just was like a sponge. I just wanted to learn everything I can, everything I could. I think Mary was a big catalyst on that. Um, you know, she was very uh, supportive and liked it that this 25-year-old kid was interested in the assassination. And, uh, you know, she and I corresponded for many years. Uh, the first book I ever wrote on the assassination um, was is called Lee Harvey Oswald, A Lone Gunman, question mark. And uh, she encouraged me to write that. And I, I hand wrote it and sent it to her, and she typed it up and sent it back to me. And so we tried to get that published without uh, success. I finally found a literary agent in Chicago that was interested, but right at that time, the FBI released 96,000 pages of material. This is like 77. And um, he said, you know, you should look through that so we're as current as we can be. Well, and that's nine thousand six hundred dollars, and I think I was making twelve thousand dollars as a teacher that year. So, the book sat in a box for forty some years, and then when self publishing became easier and understandable, I I had it printed. And then, uh, you know, year and a half, two years ago, I did the manipulation of Lee Harvey Oswald, the cover up that followed, which is an exploration into how the CIA used Oswald. And then this current book, uh, The JFK Files, Pieces of the Assassination Puzzle, is a collection of the interviews I've done over the last few years, along with my analysis of some of the aspects of the case. And um, I was visiting with Chris Gallup. That's a name I'm pretty sure you know. And he said, uh, you know, Jeff, your, your column is every once in a while in your newspaper, the Hot Springs Village Voice. But, you know, have you ever thought about putting all those into a book? And I said, well, no, not really. And so we we talked about that. And I, I thought, well, you know, if I did that, as soon as I write another column, they're not all going to be in there, the JFK Files column. And so, uh, you know, the idea kind of stuck in my head, and I contacted my publisher, Del Garrett. He said, well, don't let that stop you. He said, if you keep doing this and you get another batch of interviews, he said, we'll just change the cover uh, and add volume one. So don't let that stop you. So... Went ahead and did it and got it done in uh, August. It's, it's been pretty well received. Jim Diagenio wrote a very nice piece about the book on Kennedys and King. Some other folks wrote some nice back cover comments, and I'm pleased with the book. There's a lot of interesting interviews in there. Now, what time period did it take you to collect all the interviews? I would say from 2019 to 2023. We'd try to interview someone at least once a month, and I had written some things um, that were you know, just articles before the Hot Springs Village Voice decided to start this column for me, the JFK Files. And so, I, you know, I went back and uh, added some of those. I added most of the interviews. I didn't add all of them, but the ones that I thought were kind of the cream of the crop. Um, and, you know, just uh, tweaked them into a book form versus a newspaper article. And uh, I would say those interviews mostly were done between... 2018 and 2023. In the appendix is, it's not quite an article. I never wrote about it in the JFK files, but it's one of the most interesting 
interviews I ever did, and I did it a long time ago in, in 1976. And um, I'm going to turn to the page here and find it. It um, it was with a man by the name of Ron Crawley, who was in the Marine Corps with Oswald. And it starts on page 236. And so we talked about at Sugi Naval Air Station. We talked about the CIA. We talked about Oswald. And there were some things he'd answer and some things he he wouldn't answer. And to me, you know, I... In that conversation, he he mentioned how Oswald would disappear from the base two or three weeks at a time. At a time, to me, seemed very relevant because, to me, I I interpreted that that this was happening more than once. And I believe this is when he was pitched by the CIA. Crowley said the CIA was all over that base. I asked him if he'd ever been approached for any special assignments, and he he said he couldn't answer. And so uh, that's a very interesting piece. And... Um, I've never seen an interview with Ron Crawley in any other book, and as you know, there's a thousand of them. He's uh, mentioned uh, in a list of those who uh, were in the Marines with Oswald in uh, Mr. Armstrong's Harvey and Lee, and then I think he's also mentioned in a list in the missing chapter, Lee Harvey Oswald in the Far East. I forget who wrote that right now, but um, in terms of an interview with him, I've never seen, you know, I don't have a thousand books on the Kennedy assassination. My wife would tell you I have too many, but I don't think the guy was ever interviewed for a book before. And the second time I called him, he was kind of creeped out. He wasn't sure he wanted to talk to me anymore. And I think this was the time when Edward J. Epstein was working on Legend for the uh, Reader's Digest Press. And uh, I have a feeling some, some people from Reader's Digest had gotten in touch with him, but I never saw anything printed about him. So that's a very unique interview in there, and and a Ruth Payne, uh, you know, I've interviewed her several times, and uh, I was in frequent conversation with Bill Simpich back in the, at that time period, and he said, you know, Jeff, I think she trusts you more than anybody. You you need to ask her about you know A, B, C, and D about you know all the allegations of her being CIA connected, and so I did. And she answered all of them straightforward, and she didn't duck any question. I personally don't believe she um, was connected with the CIA. Certainly her sister was. So those were interesting interviews. And there's there's several more in there. Interesting interview with Dan Hardway of the House Select Committee. And uh, I just uh, was able to get some very interesting people to, to talk to me, a couple that you know weren't necessarily associated with the assassination, but were in the Kennedy administration, like Sue Vogelsinger and Nancy Dutton. I remember Sue talked about going to Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, but she stayed in the airplane, didn't go with the motorcade. And then uh, when the murder took place, she got off the plane along with her associate to, to create more room on Air Force One and went over in another plane. And I remember she told me that uh, the atmosphere over there was pretty distasteful, that um, there were some in the Texas delegation that weren't all that upset that Kennedy had been killed. And if I remember right, she said the Secret Service even moved her to a different part of the airplane so she wouldn't have to hear it. So I just, uh, I don't know, I, I got lucky and got a lot of people to, to talk to me. And Chris got me thinking about putting them all in a book. And I did. And now it's out. 
Yeah, I was just mentioning that Dan Hardway is one of those interviews where that guy has a lot of intuition, I think, about what he should be looking for. And the fact yeah, that you got um, him to talk about things he thought were important. Yeah, it was a real interesting interview. At least my experience was that Dan wasn't an easy interview. You kind of had to pull some things out of him. But really a bright guy who, you know, it's too bad that George Giovannitti's got in the way. Who knows what else he might have been able to get out of the CIA. I remember he told me he was really wanting to get um, uh, Bill Harvey's file, but he he could never get it. But yeah, he was an interesting interview. And then Nancy Wiseman, one, I think her first name was Nancy. She was, I'm sorry, Leslie Weiselman. She uh, was another HSCA investigator, and she was also an interesting interview. She was looking more into the mafia and Ruby and lived with Dan and Ed Lopez and um, wondered if they were under surveillance. And she mentioned how the guy next door worked for the phone company, wondered if their phone had been tapped. So, No, I'm sure it had been. And, you know... At that time, just think about what they wanted to look into. Like Dan, you mentioned Dan Harvey, you want to look into it further. And, you know, either how tricky Lee Oswald is from the grave to stop them in every avenue, or he had nothing to do with it. All these leads that researchers want to investigate are being held up even to the fact that it's 60 years now. I mean, I remember in 2013, I made a series called 50 Reasons for 50 Years. Now it's 60, and Biden is holding back documents that will probably never be released now and it's like what are you going to do about it yeah it really makes you wonder you know in 1992 uh, our government passes the jfk records collection act and to put teeth into that act two years later comes the assassination records review board i remember when i interviewed judge tunheim who chaired aarb his interviews also in the book he reminded me that during that time, between 92 and 94, nothing happened to get the review board started. And he reminded me that George Bush won, was the president at that time, former CIA director. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised. And then when Clinton became president, you know, things started moving. But, you know, in 1992, they passed a law to release these records. And here we are in 2023, and they're still not released. So it just... I ask myself the question, who really runs the show? Who are even presidents intimidated by the CIA? In my second book, The Manipulation of Lee Harvey Oswald and the cover-up that followed, I mentioned um, an incident where uh, back in the day when Trump was putting down, criticizing the intelligence community, Chuck Schumer was on, I think it was MSNBC, and he was talking about how stupid that was of Trump to do that. And he said, because the CIA has more ways to get back at you than there are Sundays. And that was like, what? Wow. How do you know that? You've been threatened by him? And just seconds later, he then said something like, you know, but our intelligence community or the CIA, uh, you know, they do such a good job. And I wondered if he within seconds realized that, oops, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, it's really pathetic. thing I don't like about it is that they always keep getting away with it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a law. And here we are, how many years later? And there's stuff still being withheld. Now, I can understand that maybe there's a few documents that might cause someone harm, danger, because maybe they're still relevant somehow. But, man, I would sure think that the number of documents uh, that would be in that boat would be awfully slim. 
Well, if you're going to keep Lee Oswald in the picture, there couldn't be any then. I mean, according to them, he did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in your many interviews, that's not what you come away with. No, it isn't. You know, as many as many have pointed out, um, you know, so if the Warren Commission would have never released those 26 volumes, maybe more people would believe the report. But uh, for those who have really dug into the 26 volumes like Sylvia Maher did many, many years ago and others, there's just so much conflicting information in there. And, you know, we're at a point now, I think, Len, somebody I was talking to, I don't remember who it was, another researcher, I think made a good point that has become very relevant uh, with the current uh, Secret Service uh, Landis information. And the person said, you know, I wonder if we came up with something that really proved what happened and came out with it, would anybody believe it? And look at now the situation, you know, with Paul Landis's book, The, the Final Witness, where he is basically saying that uh, Commission 399 didn't penetrate seven wounds. He found it in the rear area of the presidential limousine. And a lot of people don't believe him. Well, I don't believe that that bullet did anything. I mean, how could it be that un undamaged? I don't know. You know, it's got a little nick in the in the nose and a bit squeezed at the bottom. But other than that, boy, it, it's in awfully good condition. But, you know, going back to Paul Landis and, uh, and his startling re revelations, some people believe that he's, you know, he's nearing the end of his life and he wants to set the record straight and... I mishandled the situation back then and didn't know if I'd be in trouble if I mentioned it, but now he's mentioning it. And and uh, a lot of uh, researchers out there are pointing out that in prior interviews in the 80s, he never mentioned this. And so, you know, it's just a perfect example, I think, of of what this other researcher said to me. You know, if, we've, if we really got some great information that proved something, would anybody believe it? And I think that this Landa situation is just that. Or they want to argue uh, you know, over it. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of that. And unfortunately, a lot of name-calling between researchers, and which is a shame. Well, what have you found that you think might be in that category, something that would that has really shaken up the whole Warren Commission? Well, um, in the book is uh, information that, as long as we're on the, the CE-399, I, just by chance, came across an opportunity to meet with an FBI lab agent's daughter, and the agent's name was Henry Heiberger, and that was a name I'd never heard of before, but he is, he and another agent were kind of the underlings to Robert Frazier, who testified before the Warren Commission, but um, the daughter let me look at her father's raw notes. And I talk about this in the book. And um, in his handwriting, at the bottom of one page, when I read it, I was like, what? He talks about how examining Kennedy's tie and shirt collar and all that, that there were no copper traces. And I thought, well, how can that be? If there's copper traces on Kennedy's back and there aren't in the throat area, I wonder if there were on Conley, because I didn't remember. And so I got in touch with Larry Hancock, who reminded me that Connolly's clothing had been laundered 
before examined, and he put me in touch with a Canadian researcher who knows A to Z on Connolly, Gary Murr, and so we talked a little bit, and he said, yeah, there was copper on Connolly's wound area. So if you have copper on the back of Kennedy's clothing and you have copper throughout Connolly and it is the same bullet, how can there not be any copper in the throat area? So that was really interesting to me, and I shared that with Jim Diagenio, and he uh, was nice enough to mention it in his book, JFK Revisited, just a little little blurb on that. I also um, came across some information. I was just hunting around on eBay one day, and I found some information, some hearings uh, about the Dodd Committee that was looking into juvenile delinquency. And... You know, what does that have to do with the Kennedy assassination? Well, one of the things that they were looking into was how easy it was for youngsters to buy a weapon. And there were several examples in these hearings that um, showed how, I think there was one kid who even got a machine gun for Pete's sake. And so um, I just ha- I just happened to look out. Of, you know, there were thousands of pages of hearings, but the, just the, the portion that I got um was was an interview with a guy who <clears throat> used to be um in the FBI and he talked about he, he was now in the freight business and um that was how mail order guns are shipped and he talked about all the problems with it because um the the laws are just so different. Uh, there's no uniformity across the states in how you order these things. And I just I couldn't believe the stroke of luck I had. You know, he says, so, for example, in Texas, <laughs> you know, 50 states, and the one I'm interested in is Texas, and, and, he, and that's the state he, he's uh, talking about in his testimony. And... He talks about the three different ways that people would need to to um, go about getting guns through the mail, and Oswald didn't follow any of those. Yet he, we're told, was able to get those guns, and that got me to thinking more and more about that. And I was thinking about, you know. I haven't got everything memorized about the assassination, but I sure don't remember anybody from the post office saying, uh, hey, you know, I remember, you know, I saw this guy Oswald's picture on television, and I remember him coming into the post office and picking up a large package and all this and that. There wasn't anybody, to my knowledge, that ever, from the post office, that ever saw Oswald pick up anything like that. So how was it that Oswald was able to get these guns if he didn't follow the uh, Texas procedures. Another unanswered question. Yeah. Or then maybe it didn't happen that way. And they yeah. were planted, right? Yeah. I mean, John Armstrong. Yeah, it may, really, makes me, it really makes me wonder if he, um, did, did he even go pick up those guns? I'm beginning to believe he did not. Yeah. Saying John Armstrong has done some great work on just how those guns even came into the country, the man liquor. Carcanos and how they were put together out of scraps of working parts of mm-hmm. one and the other, and they 
you know, the guys yeah. bought like a thousand, <coughs> bought a thousand and made like maybe two or three hundred that were workable. Yeah. Well, if, as I remember it, the FBI was so afraid to test fire that on the Kirk Arcano, they were afraid that firing pin might break. So, I mean, it was a piece of junk. And I just, uh, I will go to my grave believing that, when pe- I'll put it this way. When people ask me, do you think Lee Harvey Oswald killed President Kennedy? I say no, and I add that I don't believe anyone could have done what Oswald is alleged to have done with that crummy rifle. I just don't don't believe it. it's possible. Yeah. I mean, really, who would? Apparently some Warren commissioners did. <laughs> and that's another part, another chapter in the book is all the... How the Warren Commissioner, Warren Commission members, almost to a man, they they didn't they didn't buy the single bullet theory. Um, but the only person on the commission that didn't ask many questions was Alan Dulles, and my guess is he knew the answer to a lot of them. You know, I I think Dulles sitting there in the Warren Commission hearings. It's my understanding that he attended more of them than more meetings and hearings than anybody. Uh, that's likely because he could then keep the CIA informed of what the commission was up to. Like, it's my also my understanding that Ford, uh, Gerald Ford, was helping the FBI in that way. I just, just wonder if Dulles was sitting there at times on pins and needles just hoping none of this assassination of Castro and the attempts and the mob and the this and the that would come up. Well, he would be there to keep up from being printed. Yeah. A number of times you hear they go into uh, off the record or in camera, whatever, they, you know, and then they mm-hmm. come back on. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? No, no, we've we've covered it all. Okay, that's it, you know. There's also an interview in there with Jim Gokenauer, who testified before the church committee, and he talks about um, a friendship that developed between him and Elmer Moore, a Secret Service agent. I thought was really interesting. Some of the things that Moore told him, like the one that jumped off the page to me, was when Moore told Gokenauer that he was told to tell Dr. Perry to change what he was saying about the throat wound, or in so many words, I'll, I'll ruin your medical future, your, your practice. And I'm trying to find a relative of Dr. Perry's to uh, see if I can find out anything more about that. I think that's one area, um, you know, there's not many people left who witnessed the assassination or who did the investigations or whatever. There just aren't many left. But um, I've learned through my own experiences that if you can find family members of some of these quote-unquote players in the assassination, it's worthwhile because I can tell you from my experiences that what Daddy said to the Warren Commission or in public many times is not what Daddy said around the kitchen table. Yeah, I've had that experience too. Yeah. So I think that's a an avenue for those of us who continue to dig into this need to to try to find family members see what see what they believe see what they remember, see what they were told. I doubt, you know, that would lead to any smoking gun, but um, every little bit helps. 
Well, that's what it's done. It's taken interested citizens, such as yourself, to go around and make a collection of, of what the knowledge is. And, you know, the FBI and the Secret Service and uh, any government commission seems to always be infiltrated to just go back to the Warren Commission. They had it right all along, and it was Lee Oswald. Yeah, it's, um, of course, I'm biased, but it's just hard for me to to believe that anybody believes that one person could have done this. Right, and then you have to lock up the records for 60 years plus, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, Also, in, in the book is an interview I did with Bill and Gail Newman, you know, the witnesses that were very close to Kennedy when he was shot. And, you know, he said what a lot of people say, you know, if there's, if it was one guy, why is there a need to withhold documents for 50, 60 years? And I get it that part of that might be related to sources and methods, but it's 60 years later. How many of these sources you know, could I, I still be alive? You. Right. I, I disagree. It's like sources of methods in a murder investigation. So you could take any other crime and say, well, look, at this isn't involving the Secret Service and the CIA. It's Lee Oswald. So show us what you got. But then the fact yeah. is that it isn't Lee Oswald. It does implicate Secret Service, CIA, you know, right from Hoover on down. So they all wanted this guy out of there. Yeah. And, you know, there's also the factor of, you know, what all has been destroyed. Um, in talking with... Uh, Judge Thunheim, who chaired the Assassination Records Review Board, and and um, one of their senior investigators, Dr. Uh, David Montague, uh, I learned that the ARB went to the Secret Service for their information, and after being contacted, the Secret Service destroyed their materials. Now, that's criminal, isn't it? Or I'm not a lawyer. I mean, how can you how can you get away with that? And and just the 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 boldness to to do that to a government committee or board, whatever you want to call it, contacts you for information and you put it in the shredder. That's the response. That's just mind blowing to me. You know what? You, why else would you destroy it other than that there's things in there you don't want people to see? What other reason would there be to destroy it? And my, my answer would be there isn't any other reason. No, there isn't. And like I mentioned, if you did any other topic or any other murder investigation, it would be in front page headlines. No, they covered yeah. this up. They did this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the media doesn't like to, doesn't like to talk about the Kennedy assassination all these years later. And that is, I think, a fingerprint of, of the whole corrupt nature of the cover-up and then the crime. Because the cover-up yeah. is so dirty that it makes you think that they got to be involved in the crime as well. It wouldn't just be, oh, that's my friend, like, I'll go along with this. Yeah. They, no, they all had well, something I, to gain. Yeah. I'm lucky I work for a, an owner of a newspaper who will let me write about this every month. Uh, I don't know that anybody else does that. If they do, I'm unaware of it. Oh, yeah. No, I haven't heard of it, like, since maybe Penn Jones, right? In the Midlothian yeah, mirror. That, yeah, you know, um, that also came up in a previous conversation. That's kind of what I've done with this book uh, that Penn did in his several volumes of Forgive My Grief, volume one, two, three, and four, and so on. 
accumulation of articles that he wrote and information that he found, and that's kind of what the JFK files, pieces of the assassination puzzle are, or is, excuse right. me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, where can people find the book? Do you have a website? Uh, I do not. Uh, it's on Amazon.com, as are all my other books. I've also written two books of uh, veteran stories. One is um, all World War II veterans that I published several years ago. It's called They Answered the Call. And then also in 2023, I did another volume of uh, veteran oral histories called War Stories. Um, all Those two books and the three JFK books are all available on Amazon. If you type in Jeffrey L. Meek books, they'll all pop up. Right. Okay. Yeah. And um, the book does have a photo section. There's quite a few photos of the different people that you took. Yeah, I, I decided to put some of that in just to make the book more credible. You know, talking about interviewing this person and that, I thought it would be good to include some pictures that show that I actually met with these people. So, yeah, there's, I don't know, about uh, 14, 15 photos in the back. Right. I just, um, in my advanced copy, I didn't see the table of contents where the list of people interviewed are. Is that in other versions? I, I I, I did not include a table of contents. Probably should have, but I, but I didn't. If any of your listeners buy the book, and um, I put together like a subject and name, a bit of a name index, more of a subject index for the book. Uh, if they contact the uh, newspaper, they can put you in touch with me, and um, I, I can email that to to anyone who, who's interested. Our newspaper is at uh, www.hsv. V O I C E dot com. H S V standing for Hot Springs Village Voice. Hot Springs Village Voice newspaper. Yeah, it is a collection of your interviews of mm-hmm. uh, from all these articles that you had written over the years and at least you're saying at least the last five years. Yeah, from two, most of them are two thousand eighteen to two thousand twenty three. Right. So uh, we're going to try to influence people to consider purchasing it and go through it after this interview and read the Jim DiEugenio review. And then they'll get the idea of, you know, what it is. It's JFK research. It's interviews of, uh, you know, researchers that uh, people maybe want to hear more than just a line or two or a paragraph. You know, yeah. you know what do they mm-hmm. have to say? And sometimes they, they say things that doesn't mean so much right at the time. And later on you go... Oh, do you realize he said he was here? And now the yeah. guys, are, you know, so this is mm-hmm. important, mm-hmm. especially like maybe yeah. like a Ruth Payne where she may say things and you go, well, I guess, you know, she's totally innocent. And then you find out later, you know, especially with her sister, right? Yeah, Sylvia Hoke, yeah. Yeah, she's definitely CIA connected. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. All right, then. Look, before we wrap up, is there something you'd like to bring up about the book or... or things I didn't get to? I would just close about the book. I I think that anybody that buys it is going to learn something. I've just apparently always had a knack to get people to open up. I noticed that Jim in his review mentioned a time or two that I think it was Dan Hardway and somebody else had mentioned things to me that he hadn't mentioned in prior interviews. And I think that kind of also goes to the point you just made, Len, that, you know, I might interview somebody and and then six months or a year or whatever later, you might interview them, and something they remember something else that they didn't say in a prior interview. So 
there's just a, a lot of interesting information in there. Um, I don't try to get pushy about you should believe this or you should believe that. The um, reason I wrote the book is to share the information that I've learned through these interviews, and you can make up your own mind. No, well, I, you know, I, I hear the people that you're talking to. You know, it's not like I hear you have an, an agenda and you're leading or pushing. It's just like you, you've asked these people, tell me more about yeah. what you, you, you were there. You saw this, you know, or, or, or even the, the case that you talked to their relatives, mm-hmm. their daughters, and you say, well, my father kept his notes. He, here's his handwritten notes. You get to go yeah. through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, been, it's been fun. It's a labor of love. It's something I'm going to keep doing. I'm going to continue to write the column. My next column will be uh, later this month. We print on Tuesdays uh, at the Hot Springs Village Voice newspaper. And my next column will be in two parts. And I did an interview with Sam Giancana's daughter, which was rather interesting. doesn't solve anything, but it's pretty interesting to hear her talk about Vegas and this name and that name and her father and the relationship they had and her father's murder and Kennedy's murder. And that'll be, um, oh, I think part one will still be in this month. And it may be the first Tuesday in November before part two prints. We, we devote one page to, to columns and commentary. And, and uh, there was one in the queue from another one of our writers um, that had been on hold. So part one may not be in the voice until October 31. We'll make a link to the paper. and. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 We print on Tuesdays. Okay, then, well, thank you very much, Jeff, for taking time to talk to me, and good luck with the book. Just the fact that uh, there's an article or a good review from Jim Eugenio says a lot right there. Yeah, well, I very much appreciate that. I had no idea that was coming, but... Um, no, well, he recommended that I get in touch with you, you know, to get the book, you yeah. know, because there's so many bad books out there. There's so many, so, yeah. you know, anytime we hear something worthwhile, and like I say, sometimes I know the topic, maybe Jim knows the topic, but... It's good that we learn, oh, yeah, I didn't know that, you know? So, yeah. you know, there's a few well, things, think, that, you know? Yeah, I think that's another good point you make, Len, is you got to keep an open mind because nobody knows the answers to all this stuff. And the people that act like they do, I think they're selling themselves short because even the people that, you know, we, we may disagree with along the lines of a certain topic, there's still a possibility you might learn something there. And I think going back to a previous one of your points that, you know, Something that some that a principal player in the assassination said to somebody else may have meaning because of what if, what you have learned or I have learned from our research, and you add that one to the other one, and now it's two, and it does make sense. So I, I like to keep an open mind. I like to hear comments from people that have like thinking that I have, as they're referred to, the lone nutters. You know, emails and contacts with those people. I appreciate that, too. It's how we learn is by listening to each other. I'm not at all interested in putting anybody down because they don't agree with what I believe. Very good. Okay, then, Jeff, thank you so much again for taking time. You're welcome. Just keep in touch. What's okay. new on the horizon for you? Do you have anything out, another book in, in the pipeline? I don't have um, another book in mind at this point. Just... Uh, Busy. I write several other things for the newspaper. I also do a column on uh, veterans called the Veterans Vault. 
and I cover different aspects of life in, in Hot Springs Village. So that and two grandsons, and um, I like to fish, and that, that, that pretty much takes up my time. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, just keep me in the loop. If there's anything you think I'd be interested in, just send me an email. Okay, Len. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Good night. You're welcome. Good night.